0: Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. SoFi is on a mission to become more than just a traditional direct-to-consumer fintech organization. They want to become a financial services platform that will enable banks and fintech firms to build best-of-breed financial services. The recent acquisition of Technisys Platform, combined with their banking as a service division, Galileo, will provide an end-to-end vertically integrated technology stack using industry-leading APIs. To put this significant acquisition in a perspective of the future direction of banking, we have none other than Derek White, CEO of the Galileo Financial Technologies Unit of SoFi on today's podcast. So welcome to the show, Derek. As you know, you're one of the first people asked to be on the Banking Transform podcast more than two years ago, and even before that, to do interviews for the financial brand, I think I first connected with you when you were with BBVA. Uh, for those who, view, those on the listening audience that may not know who you are, can you provide a brief synopsis of your long career progression?
1: Yeah, thank you, Jim. It is so great to see with you, see you again, and to be on your podcast. Thanks for the invitation. So my background is uh, I've been an entrepreneur, helped start businesses from the time I was a kid, helped uh, start two of the first internet banks, including Wingspan and a, and a business called Juniper Financial Services that was eventually sold to a British bank that wanted to enter the United States. And then I spent, I told my wife it would be six months to celebrate, the, uh, celebrate that and move across the pond. We then spent 14 years overseas in London, in Dubai and Madrid with great financial institutions, expanding businesses into new markets, growing and scaling those businesses, as well as introducing new technologies from the first mobile money service in the UK uh, to the first FinTech accelerator um, based out of London, to early crypto work, and then uh, eventually running the revenue line and the creation of the future for BBVA based out of Spain. And then returned back to the States after 20 years, um, back to my home state of Utah. And now I have the privilege of being CEO of Galileo Financial Services, part of the Sofi Group.
0: You know, it's interesting. Three years ago, I did have an opportunity to interview you you on the FinTech stage of uh, uh, Money 2020 in front of 7,000 people. Boy, those were the days. Uh, (laughs) Your insights were spot on that day. But neither of us foresaw that on the rise in early 2020 would be the pandemic. What is the biggest change that you've seen in the industry as a whole with the world shutting down in 2020?
1: Across the industry, it's, it's probably difficult to pick one. If you'll give me liberties to pick maybe three, I'd, probably, I'd suggest That's for great. the traditional industry. For the traditional industry, it's the true mainstream adoption of digital instead of talking about it for a decade and talking about investing and how to go about doing it it's actual the adoption of mainstream digital and mobile first is real it's a it's diyable banking now through our through our devices that's real the second is just the remote the remote aspect of work and shifting 100,000 employees to be able to work from home within 2 weeks and you know as as part of covid i, I recall as we shifted employees to be able to work from home, uh, part of the corporate banking world and asset management world, the number one request coming into the technology team was: yes, of course, to get their PCs and everything home, but was printers, printers, Jim. Yeah, and the fact that that's the, that no longer is is the case. We're essentially 100% digital. The remote working is 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 still uh, is still pervasive, and it's changed the way we all interact. The third I would have to say is the mainstream of crypto, and we can get into that a little bit more. But just the adoption and the attention of crypto, and, and it's no longer uh, not just crypto, but broader blockchain. And then we'll get into Web three, and and it's it's more about the actual uh, mainstream adoption um, instead of technology chasing a problem. It's real.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You know, when you think about it, you know, you say the mainstream adoption to digital. But it was also the awareness of financial institutions to how far behind they were from the standpoint of real digital. We we were all doing things like we did ATMs, which is we provided the customers, used it, everything's okay. But all of a sudden, when fintech firms came into play, all of a sudden it started to get into new ways of uh, segmenting customers based on usage or based on how much they use different financial services. And the ability and the need to all of a sudden have everything work digitally, smoothly, which meant a complete rethinking of the back office as well. You know, it goes without saying that the impact of fintech firms on the banking industry has been pervasive. Um, One of the fastest growing fintech firms is SoFi, your firm, Uh, originally operating as a direct-to-consumer platform with Galileo division that you had being added in 2020. How does the recent acquisition of Technisys change the direction of SoFi as most know it?
1: It's no change. It actually accelerates the vision that's been publicly communicated. And an easy way to, to, to think about this, Jim, and we've talked about this in our past discussions, is this concept of above the glass and below the glass. We use that terminology to bring business and technology and, and people across industries together because it carries beyond financial services and banking. The above the glass brand or the B2C brand in our company is SoFi. Three and a half million members, a one-stop shop that is the most robust product offering offered by any digital uh, bank on the planet. Uh, Incredibly uh, impressive one-stop shop. That's SoFi. The below the glass business, technology business, is a true open banking platform that provides services to over a hundred million users Uh, across 150 brands that end users can interact with their money through the Galileo platform. And we can talk a little bit more about Galileo, but it's this, the vision that we've communicated to the market is this AWS of FinTech. Galileo enables the SoFi's of the world, Anthony Noto who leads SoFi and others that, that are founding and creating businesses, it enables them to create those businesses and take them to market. Technicis accelerates that AWS uh, of fintech vision by allowing us to help create the end user interface, uh, uh, provide professional services and human capital capabilities, as well as to provide a modern uh, core banking platform that the industry is in so need of. And we have this thesis that a lot of the innovation above the glass is slowing in many organizations because they haven't invested and fix that back office or the below the glass technology. 80% of financial institutions operate on platforms that were written in in, in languages that are 25 to 40, 40 years old. Have you ever heard of the language mumps, Jim?
0: Mumps. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you you know, I go back 40 years into the banking world and uh, knowing that the, the core behind the scenes was built then. It, it was frightening then when we added ATMs and it's only gotten more involved.
1: Absolutely, we absolutely see that. And, and so much of it is, is creating, you know, banking was built by, a, by product and by P&L and or tied to branches. That what has changed dramatically, especially as a result of COVID, is increased focus on the end human user and how those humans are interacting, and then what is needed in order to bring together a unified experience in that, in that digital layer. And in order to do that, you can do surface level, but to truly get to the game-changing business outcomes and the end user experience, an investment below the glass is required in technology platforms and systems to bring the data back to the point of interaction to make it uh, more intelligent and smart for, for the end user.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned the mission of SoFi is to become the Amazon Web Services of fintechs. Um, It's certainly a lofty ambition. But the ability to serve other financial institutions, which you already do, while also being a major direct player or direct competitor offering financial services, could be viewed as a problem. Um, Certainly Amazon and Google have tried to walk that tightrope before without much success. In fact, Google had to actually scale back their ambition to be both a provider as well as a competitor. How will SoFi deal with this challenge?
1: Well, we're, we're, we're doing it today. We have over, as I mentioned, we have over 100 million end users on our platform operating across 150 brands. SoFi is one of those brands and that's a direct to consumer business. We've lost no major customers in the two years that SoFi has owned Galileo. If that isn't validation of, of the opportunity, not only that, but we're adding 40 to 50 new clients, new businesses, new businesses like SoFi, like Chime, like Robinhood and others that operate on the Galileo platform. They look at they look to Galileo and now Technisys as an opportunity to leverage best-in-class, world-class technology instead of building it themselves. Because these, these businesses are not easy to build, Jim. That integration into the infrastructure of money as to how money moves across markets and between individuals on the payment processing piece that Galileo does, or in the core banking platform that is a, 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 an extensible platform that Technicis uh, ha, has built. Those businesses are not easy to build and many have attempted and tried and failed And they keep coming back to us because of the world-class technology and the capability to build it. And we also see that the likes of Google and Amazon and others have been very successful in building their web services divisions. So each business and each one of our clients calls on us for different services, whether it's the financial products, the technology products, or services that we offer.
0: So was the technicist deal more about not only their customer base, but the fact that they really expanded the services that you could offer to all of your clients?
1: Yeah, it's a beautiful trifecta now, Uh, Jim. It's the combination of SoFi having a banking license and having the ability for us to offer, uh, uh, offer products through SoFi. But then it's also, and being able to leverage the SoFi banking license to be a sponsor bank for our clients. But then it's also the payment processing business that Galileo has and the core banking platform that Technicis has. The bringing together all three of those in a unified full stack for our clients, they could literally come to us and Jim, if you come to us and say, you wanna create the financial brand bank, right? If you come we, and turnkey, we can offer you the end user interface, the payment processing, the connection into the infrastructure of how money moves, as well as the core banking system and ledger, all in one full stack, uh, customizable, differentiated by you, and DIYable by you.
0: Well, it's interesting because Sofi, you know, they were a small fintech not too long ago, and you've grown extraordinarily fast. You know, your entire career has been around fast moving innovative players from way back at Wingspan and first, uh, uh, what was it? First- uh, First USA. Oh, yeah, first USA, That yep. yeah, the old bank one and all these other things yes. that were, yes. most people don't even remember. But how does SoFi compare from a perspective of innovation and digital transformation to some of the other players you've been involved with?
1: It's incredible. Again, I'd use the above the glass and the below the glass analogy. If you take SoFi's above the glass business, and what the team has built over the last decade, having started as a lending business, and then expanded off of a a, a single product offering into the most robust product offering from lending and multiple uh, lending products, from mortgages to personal loans, to uh, student loans, to uh, money and credit card, uh, to investment products. Enabling that full suite of products is incredible. I mean, Jim, you cover enough digital banks To know that that is pretty unique in a neo-digital bank and to be able to offer that just just, uh, as an end value proposition to end consumers, as a one-stop shop to have their full financial life uh, encompassed in the end user experience with SoFi is incredible. But that extends also to a business below the glass that offers open banking, banking as a service that is entirely unique. And the pace at which that above the glass capabilities have been built is remarkable. But the pace at which we're introducing new capabilities, launching new partners, launching new clients in our Galileo business and the growth rates that we've seen that we publicly communicate are incredibly impressive and outstrips anything that I've ever worked in.
0: So, you know, one of the biggest challenges in the banking industry is the need for fast innovation at scale something that certainly doesn't come very easily for legacy banking organizations, but even for FinTech firms, you can get caught in your own PR releases. Having worked with a challenger mindset over your career, and it's not given for any FinTech firm, how do firms avoid complacency? How have you seen firms avoid complacency?
1: So much of it focuses on the leading indicators of where the markets and where Um, human behavior and where businesses are headed. And having a focus on the leading indicators versus just the lagging indicators that are financials and and what can be reported on a quarterly basis. And so much attention in our business is focused on interpreting what those leading indicators are. And from a a business model standpoint, we look at how are humans interacting with money. And then in SoFi, so much of our uh, ambition is to help people get their money right and with uh, within Galileo it's helping founders and builders of businesses get money right for their end customers and tailoring solutions for them It's looking at how the end humans are interacting with money and then how that's monetized and that's a model that we believe extends across multiple industries to understand how people are interact how how the humans, not the financial products. We're not talking just about the checking checking account, savings account, but looking at how the end human user is interacting with money and or value and how that changes over time and then how that monetization happens. And monetization is shifting in the financial services space from what was just traditionally through the financial products themselves, but into additional revenue lines and services.
0: You know, we've seen that with uh, some firms uh, overseas where they built some youth banking, what I call youth banking services. And it's not really built around banking. It's built around the open banking concept. So you have technology, you have sales of games, you have music, you have concerts, you have all these other elements that, be, where the firms want to reach the audience that they have and what happens that becomes a financial the, the funding mechanism as opposed to the financial accounts you know we we don't we're not even close to that in the US right now and and you know part of the problem also i believe is that i i am under the impression and after interviewing a lot of firms that most firms still are trying to digitize old process in the back office as opposed to completely rebuilding a digital bank in the background? Because, you know, if you don't get the back office right, it's really hard to get the speed necessary in the front end. What is the biggest challenge that you see potentially with traditional financial institutions, but even some of the the older fintechs out there as far as how, where their, their focus has to be in the back office? How do they get that right?
1: Yeah. So, um, Jim, you're so right on that description of taking kind of existing processes and just projecting them in a new interaction model through a model a mobile interface you know in, in one business uh, traditional bank one of the ways in which we drove transformation was to simply look at the top 50 reasons why a human would walk into a physical office simply measuring the top 10 15 20 50 reasons why on earth would a human walk into a physical office, whether it's in corporate banking, asset management, wealth management, retail banking? Why would they physically take leave their office, leave their chair, leave their home, get in a car, drive to a physical? Why do they do that? Because they want to, or is it because they need to, because it's not available to be able to do DIY digital? And, Corporate and institutional banking is a little bit laggard behind consumer banking because it's all here. It's all here, right? But that, si- that simple principle of, of looking at what can be done DIYable, as you describe it, and not just taking the processes that are there today that are on paper that are monetized through a physical signature and projecting that into a digital interface, but reimagining what that experience is and why does the human want to engage with you, whatever the business line may be that is really important from the human experience i think i feel like the industry's much more advanced on that than than on the t- technology revolution below the glass that is required a big part of the reason why we we acquired technesis was a recognition like i said 80% of the financial institutions around the world are what are considered first generation or maybe second generation core banking platforms and those platforms are architected around products, not around humans. They're architected in a way that each product can be run as a separate p not designed to be connected in a user experience that comes back for the end customer. Our, our business now, technesis is architected in that way that enables an experience that is brought together for the end user that's entirely transformational. And over the next seven to 10 years, Jim, there's gonna be a massive migration from these traditional core banking platforms to the modern core banking platforms. I'll give you just one example, and I won't name the company. There's a company that in the United States, three of the top 10 banks operate on this one core banking platform. That core banking platform has informed their customers that it has a terminal life. It will end. They will end support of that core banking platform. These are three of the top 10 banks in the United States and that core banking platform's going to end. So it has to move, those three institutions, as well as many others, have to move to a new, new system, a migration to a new system. Either that or they fork the code and they try and manage it themselves. And so over the next seven to 10 years, while there's been a lot of investment in that end user experience, there's gonna be a lot more investment in the below the glass, the systems that uh, fix that uh, below the glass experience. But the beauty of it, Jim, part of the beauty of this, by fixing that, it will enable smarter and more intelligent interactions in the glass with the end customer, because we'll be able to bring together a more holistic view of the customer, we'll be able to access data in a way that many aren't doing today.
0: You know, it's interesting. Everything you're talking about, things we talk about often in this podcast, involves massive, massive amounts of change, even more than the massive investment to see. In other words, the the dynamics of the impact on the human is is greater than the the need to write checks to buy new technology. You know, and, and one thing that's been interesting, we talked about it before we got on the air today, is that you've worked for organizations that had leadership, that had foresight, that did not rest on the laurels, did not look and say, geez, we're doing really well, we don't have to change. You've been very fortunate in working for, as you said, the First USA's, the, the BBVA's, and other Google, other firms that really always had their step ahead as opposed to holding on to legacy thoughts. How important is it that you now have a, have a platform that not only are you the teacher, in a way, of a lot of your clients, but a lot of your clients are on the forefront also, and they're teaching you some of the things that can be done. I would imagine that that dynamic is interesting because it continues the process moving forward, doesn't it?
1: It is. One of the most rewarding things is to work with some, with the best people in the world and to work with the visionaries that, that can see into the future. They see the future and they see, what, uh, see where the world is heading. And then to be able to partner with them and to be able to translate that vision into, in Spanish they say in manos de los clientes, in the hands of the customer. How do you translate a vision? And that's where that's where coming back to how do the question about how do companies not become complacent? It's understanding how long does it take to translate a vision into the hands of the end user into the end customer. And that's one of the most rewarding things about working with these brilliant people over a career, and just in the ecosystem, to be able to connect with the most brilliant people and to help translate their ideas into execution, their ideas into value for the end human user, and into tangible, scalable businesses that employ more brilliant people. That's a compounding uh, effect and just so energizing to be able to learn from these people and to be able to take learnings from clients and build it into our platform, to be able to take our platform. I'll give you an example, Jim. Uh, at one point in my career, I had the privilege of working in the United Kingdom, London, for a couple of years, and uh, it was shortly after the crisis. And there were there were zero companies in the European IPO pipeline. Zero companies looking to go public. It was dead, dead. And there was a feeling that maybe innovation was dead in Europe. Right. And so, and in London, and there was almost this inferiority complex of how do we, how do we reinvent, what are we going to do?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and so as part of a, a number of people uh, working in the London ecosystem at the time, we created the first FinTech Accelerator. And that, those accelerators, the stars, the Y Combinators of the world, they accelerate human capital and accelerate business models. What was lacking was the technology platform that really accelerates it. And that's what we have at Galileo. We have the technology platform that takes this human capital and business model acceleration and actually builds it and lands it in the the hands of customers at scale with over a hundred million users. And now with Technosys, we have 200 million users across over 200 brands operating around the world from mature banks to early stage startups. One of the most rewarding stories I can tell you, Jim, one of the most rewarding things is when a founder walks into your office And you've had lots of these stories on this podcast and you've personally experienced a lot of these. One of the most rewarding things is when a founder comes in and says, listen, I've got an idea. I have zero funding, but I can solve a really big problem. Can you help me design that business? Can you help me launch that business? and then to be able to partner with them and not just draw it out on paper, but actually build it into the technology, leveraging reusable platform technology that accelerates and brings innovation to the market, whether it's parent, teen, child uh, authorizations at 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 a level that we do at scale across a number of players, or it's two or three day early paycheck capabilities. To be able to translate an entrepreneur's dream and bring it to life is absolutely rewarding We've done that for the largest neobank in the United States.
0: It's an amazing environment because I think, that, as I said, you know, as much as you want to innovate, you have clients that are also innovating. And you, and you go back to the, uh, the legacy core providers, and you, and you have legacy core providers serving legacy core financial institutions. And you go, geez, it's hard to get that energy going to the level that obviously is going on at SoFi. You know, while legacy organizations are still trying to figure out how to make digital banking work, As you mentioned, concepts like blockchain, crypto, NFTs, Web 3.0 and the metaverse are changing the rules daily or at least changing the vision of what is possible. What is the area of most dramatic change from your perspective that we can see on the horizon?
1: Well, there's uh, many of these will converge into an end user experience that will be transformational. Um, and when brought together, when Web 3.0, the metaverse, and, and crypto or brought, blockchain are brought, brought together, is going to be pretty pretty remarkable. You know, an interesting stat, um, <laughs> uh, talking to 20,000 university students around the world on a, on a uh, webcast just a couple of months ago, uh, polled the, the 20,000 students and asked the question, how many of you hold crypto today 57% 57% of university students um, were in this forum and a pretty sizable forum indicated that they're holding crypto now there are risks associated with that and everybody needs to be cautious on on uh, on crypto but i the the excitement around web 3.0 around the metaverse and uh, are all are, are interesting and unique and web3.0 is an evolution of where we are today. Right. Whereas the metaverse is an a, a creation of an entirely new space, an entirely new real estate, an entirely new virtual experience that simulates reality. And how much there's the real estate that's being created through through that and I've got my my son's Oculus just sitting here behind me and watching him Battle in that in the Oculus world, you know how much of that new metaverse is going to be occupied by legacy per, legacy players establishing real estate within that new um, new world. We'll see, and so much of it will depend on the technology, the adoption of that the technology that enables that end user experience, um, uh, uh, to, 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 as well as the the providers and the players that, that shape industry establishing a presence there.
0: You know, it's interesting. And it's happening so quickly. I, w- I was, went on a little gallery hop with my wife and, and brother three days ago, went into what looked like a real traditional gallery. In fact, it was an over-the-top gallery in that uh, Salvador Dali sculpture, which I didn't know Salvador Dali did sculpture, but was in the front of it. And I walk in and three different places in the aisle, there were like these video things playing in a frame. All of a sudden I realized I was watching uh, m M&M and NFTs in action. And you go, oh my God, I'm in a traditional gathering. I got this other thing going on. And it is almost hard for the mind to comprehend what is possible and what's going to stick or not stick. But it, what's interesting, that plays out very quickly now. You know, we used to dream, and the dreams would take forever if they even happen. Now you can dream about what's possible, and it's going to become a reality in certain ways almost immediately. You know, how is your organization, how is SoFi and Galileo dealing with scenario planning around these potentially massive shifts in the
1: marketplace? Uh, Again, so much of it comes back to looking at the leading indicators that that shape industry. And those leading indicators can be macroeconomic But and looking at macroeconomic factors and the various scenarios that could play out there. But so much of it then translates those Macroeconomic factors into the key th- three factors I mentioned before on how humans are a uh, human behavior is interacting and then how that is monetized and how that is monetized over time. Monetization in financial services has traditionally ha- has traditionally been through financial products and fees <laughs> and fees, checking accounts, savings accounts, financial instruments, right? In Galileo, we are monetizing human interactions in a, federally regulated bank, not through necessarily financial products. We enable payment processing, but we also are a platform that enables the creation of business. It's an entirely different revenue capability. And then the third is services that allow people to run their businesses. So the evolution of those monetization models is shifting. And now with the addition of technesis, we have the ability to offer the end user interface, core banking platform that is fully primitives-based, assembled into microservices, and allows for the construction of new products at speed in a way that no other platform can enable.
0: You know, some of the concepts are often discussed and and more often misdefined are the concepts of, you've already talked about platforms and embedded finance. You know, what is the impact of this shift from really what I would call transactional banking to engagement or experiential? Thank you. you
1: know, Jim, I love the analogy from uh, the automotive industry. And as we talk about the evolution of experience, looking at, if you talk to the team at Mercedes-Benz or BMW, or I've uh, done a lot of work as a co- in corporate banking, working with uh, automotive industry for, over a period of time, there are five levels of autonomy in the automotive industry The define uh, levels of autonomy on moving a human from one place to another through this machine or through this vehicle. Those five levels of autonomy go everything from taking, it's it can be compared to feet on, hands on, or mind on. You take your foot off of the gas, that's the first couple, that's the first step in, in autonomy. Then taking the hands off of the wheel but then having your mind on and concentrating on it. Because if you've ever gone 150 miles an hour on the Autobahn in a level, level three automobile with your hands off, but your mind on after an hour and a half, your mind is shattered.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: But that, those levels of autonomy of how a human interacts on, on their journey with a vehicle is very similar and can a parallel can be drawn as to how a human interacts with money and levels of autonomy. You talk about the experience, so much of this above the glass and below the glass comes back to the glass itself and the experience that the human has with their money and how intelligent or autonomous that experience can be. At a very basic level, do they have to do everything themselves? Do they want to do something with someone in a financial institution or do they ultimately just want us to do it for them? And when you get into that level of autonomy and defining level of autonomy, you have to get into the levels of data. You gotta have to get into levels of intelligence. And all of this, the beauty of this, Jim, is this all is measurable. So anybody running a large organization can look at these data, data, data elements and understand where they are on data intelligence, on how intelligent their end user interaction is, on how intelligent and, 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 and autonomous their organization is, how DIYable it is, where do people actually want to interact with them? But then, Jim, that naturally then bridges into trust. Because for yeah. you to sit in yeah. a vehicle and trust that your Tesla is going to drive you, that it's going to pull around and actually pick you up when you walk out of that restaurant, or that it's going to take you to that destination, you have to trust that vehicle so deeply. Do you trust your financial institution the same way to make decisions on your behalf?
0: We'd like to thank our sponsor, Microsoft. See how Microsoft can help unlock new opportunities at speed and scale through innovative business processes, delivering differentiated customer experiences across channels, innovating new products and services, and redefining new ways of thinking. Find out more at microsoft.com backslash financial services. You know, Derek, another concept that is often talked about far more than has been put into action, it's the use of data and advanced analytics, analytics and the insights to drive interactions. Even the biggest banks I've had on the podcast have admitted that this is really the holy grail of banking in the future, the ability to take data and analytics and really make it so you're, you're helping the consumer you know, have an embedded experience, but one that's autonomous in many ways. How big of a problem is this for both legacy banks and fintech organizations that you work with?
1: Wow, Jim, I love this. And we could spend the next hour on this, but let's make it really tangible because so many people talk about data lakes. You take about, talk about data, you talk about M- a- ML and AI. But that can be very conceptual and it can waste a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of consultants, and a lot of technology we found, I have found, measuring data against five key things. And this is very measurable for any institution, whether it's in banking, uh, mature organizations, or emerging. And that's looking at data on the five Cs. The first is capturing data. Historical financial institutions, legacy industry, has been really good at capturing the same information over and over and over and over and over again. Because we go back to the the technology below the glass and the way the infrastructure was set up. It was set up by products. And so each product captured the same 30 fields for every product. And you had to freeform enter into everything, right? So that was was the first one, capturing data. The second one, we'll use a markets data, uh, uh, one of the world's largest market data companies, cleaning data. Refinitiv, now a division of London Stock Exchange, has publicly stated that they spend $8 for every $8 cleaning data for every $1 capturing data. So these guys are really good at capturing ecosystem data, markets data to bring back to the exchanges, but they spend $8 cleaning for every $1 capturing. Again, it's easy to measure. What do you capture? How clean is it? How is it cataloged? But then the third data, And this is where there's been over a decade of churn on this concept, what I call caching or data lakes, because you have to have a a C, so you call it caching, right? And so caching is, you, you, you capture the data, you clean it up, and then you find this great, pristine, beautiful place that's regulatory compliant, that you can park the data. You can store the data in a nice reservoir of data or a lake. And financial institutions have been fairly good at doing that because regulatorily, they have to demonstrate where their data resides. They're really good at demonstrating that. But the magic for me in these four C's is number one and number four. Number four is calling the data. Because once you put it in this pristine, beautiful lake, do you ever let anybody into that lake? What's the cost of entry into that lake? What, 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 What parts of the lake are you allowed to get into? But then, are you able to call that data back to the fifth C, actually calling it, accessing it, calling it out of the lake? And then the fifth C is connecting it back to that end-user experience you just talked so much about. Calling it back to that end-user experience where we just touched on intelligence and autonomy of data. In order to have those intelligent experiences and interactions, You have to be able to call the data but if you haven't if you're still capturing the information over and over and over again from a customer in a digital world you're losing trust if you ask for the same piece of information you already had you've lost my trust so anyway that's that's how i see data and then and then you start to bring ml and ai on top of that but if you don't have those five basic c's that are very measurable then then you're already losing well, you
0: know, it's very interesting because it's very uncomfortable for legacy finance institutions. I mean, I, I had a, a finance institution on a couple of weeks ago, and they talked about a, a fast digital experience to open a new account. But many the things they asked for were legacy questions and asking. And all they did was digitize a process like, can you give me the, uh, the number on your, your driver's license? Well, there's many more ways to capture that information about know your customer than a driver's license number. But that's legacy. And what's even more important is then at the end, and and it's the last step of your thing, is how do you deploy that across the organization so that everybody can be an innovator? Everybody can be looking out for the customer. Everybody can be looking at how to make a better business plan based on that data. And that's a real foreign concept, opening that door outside of the data groups. I mean, I remember I was working in digital and data, uh, digital and direct marketing for years. And the problem was, you know, somebody else owned the data that we had never had access to. So you can do the what ifs and all this. You go to Tencent and, and see how WeBank works. and You realize everybody's got access to that. They got four clouds working parallel. Some of their testing different things. And you look at the way data is used. And, and we're talking about both internal and external data. And that's the power. That's where we're really looking at the opportunity to go to the next level. From an experience, home. because you can't do it otherwise. It's all based on, you know, we talk about data analytics so well. and But the problem is, unless you deploy it, unless you make it so it's tangible to the consumer, you know, we, we've done really well on risk and fraud. We've done a terrible job making it so I know that you know me. You know, it's, it's yes, you protected me. Thank you. But the differentiation is not going to be in how well you've protected me. It's going to be in how well you've served me on my behalf before I even know you need to. So, you know, it's interesting, what technologies do you believe have to become more user-friendly to enable a better user experience?
1: Before I answer that, Jim, can I just build on what you were just riffing on there for a minute? Love it, love it. If you go back to that fourth C I talked about, calling data, two two data points to to validate the, the importance of data here. PwC published a report, I think it was now 12 to 14, months ago maybe a little bit more than that measuring across thousands of financial institutions what percentage of the data they capture clean cash do they actually call now they use different terms yeah what but it's getting back to that point that you just said of actually using the data calling it back to that end user experience they said 50 basis points now i've measured this personally across three scale organizations, domestic and multinational on billions of interactions, over 10 billion human interactions per year, as to how intelligent, the levels of intelligence described before, what percentage of those interactions are actually intelligent? Where data is actually being used at that point of interaction. Again, it's a metric, it's a measurement, Bankers, CEOs, CFOs love to be able to measure things. This is something that anybody can measure. How intelligence is, where are you actually using data you actually have? And on average, it's somewhere between 10 to 20%.
0: And that, by the way, is making better reports so that people can see what they've done it still doesn't touch the customer. So the way they're using it is still an internal, an internal function.
1: Absolutely. And so, just imagine the value to anybody in the organization. I am going to come back to your other question there, Jim. i kind of forgot I, it, but we'll come back I'm to it. I'm loving this one. But but just imagine the the impact to the end human user, and to the corporate institution, the company, on if you can move the intelligence of every interaction that you have. If you can increase that from 10 to 12%, from 10 to 20%, from 10 to 40%. I mean, this is how ecosystems are built. In China and Google, they start with billions of humans, trillions of interactions, and then they monetize. Google monetizes through ads. Facebook monetizes through ads. Amazon monetizes through selling product. Some ecosystems monetize through gaming. But it all starts with the end human user getting billions and trillions of interactions on that platform and then finding ways to, to monetize off of it and that thinking is not pervasive in financial services but if you're looking at if your, if your currency of the future is interactions not financial products right but if the right. real currency and leading intera- leading indicator is interactions and understanding the value of those interactions, understanding how intelligent those interactions are, how those interactions are monetized, that's the future of every industry, of every business, of every financial institution. So can we come back to your question? I, I totally forgot, because I wanted to riff off of what you, what you, what you, you know, asked me okay.
0: And we'll, we'll do a lightning round now. So what te- we'll make it really short. What technologies do you think have to become more user-friendly to enable a better user experience?
1: Uh, and, and I'd look across users of technologies for end users that are uh, that are employees within the organization. That is, uh, that to me is an, a massive opportunity that is underserved yeah. today. To make technologies to access data and bring data back to the point of interaction, to me, for a legacy organization focusing on that, that's an area that is missed by almost everyone.
0: So, then. I'm going to put you in a scenario where, not that you would do it, but let's say you go go to work and be in charge of a a legacy financial institution. What is the first thing that you knew you have to work on to make it so that you'd be prepared for the future of banking?
1: Pre-COVID, I would have said measure DIY ability. Mm -hmm. And for many, I'd probably still start with that to understand how DIY, I'd understand how many humans do we have? How do we monetize those humans? Where are the interactions happening and how are those interactions happening? And I'd look at it what's DIYable, what's do it with me, and what's do it for me? Because a DIY experience is a 20% cost income ratio, speaking to bankers, versus a 60% cost income ratio business that is do it with me.
0: Interesting. You know, finally, you're an excitable person, but what excites you right now? about what's going on in the marketplace and are there any deployments of ideas at relative scale that are catching your eye because they're unique and and monetizable?
1: Jim, I got to tell you what I'm most excited about is genuinely what we're doing here in the combination of Galileo and Technicis. I don't think anybody has anything close to what we can offer to help humans help people with the greatest stress in their life, which is money and how do we help them get their money right? through the SoFi brand and the consumer brand, but then also through the platform that we have in Galileo to be able to help founders and builders and creators translate their ideas into end human user impact at scale with, with Galileo and with Technicist with over 200 million users. That above the glass and below the glass coming together in a business, that's what's truly exciting for me. Now, the evolution of, the combination as mentioned earlier of Web 3.0, the metaverse, and broader blockchain capabilities, uh, the technology that is the blockchain, DeFi, from a value and the and organizational dynamics that come from looking at decentralized organizations, decentralized finance. All of that converging in the future is incredibly exciting and all of those are just ingredients. And every organization's looking at those ingredients on how to craft their recipe for the future. That's what's, that's what's so fun about my job is I get to talk to the, the biggest bankers in the world, the biggest retailers in the world, the biggest uh, brands in the world, as well as the emerging startups and see how those ingredients are all coming together in different recipes that ultimately are served up to the end customer. And that's magical.
0: You know, it's kind of interesting because what is exciting is it's so undefined. There's there's no parameters. You kind of know what AI and things like that would come out to be because it was around a defined universe, but it, it's kind of like a wild, wild west. You, you can't really figure out what it can become. Um, and, uh, you know, I use some of the the more recent examples, just technology-wise that, you know, you, you go back a ways too, but who would have thought you'd be able to shoot a rock in the air and then have the boosters land on something not much bigger than the room you're in and have the the rocket come back to earth in a, in a normal way and you go man I, I go back to the days when the capsule was the only thing that came back and it came back in the ocean with a parachute and and you go you know when you when you see the speed at which this stuff happens it just opens the door in every industry but especially in financial services derek Thank you so much. Um, you you are a, a breath of fresh air. You're always optimistic. I enjoyed my time with you all the time. And it, it's interesting because it is a dream world right now. We're, we're, we're in an industry that ran slow for a long time, but you, you were always on a, a fast curve on some of those slow paths. But right now, it, it is all exciting. And... Uh, and SoFi is doing some exciting things. You know, it's, it's fun to look at yourselves, PayPal, some of the other really large fintechs and, and even the, the tech companies and what they're doing, because the strategies are somewhat still undefined because where it can go can shift daily based on the needs of the marketplace. So thank you
1: again for being on the show. Thank you, Jim. Always a pleasure. And look forward to when we're doing this again in person.
0: I love it. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform. Rate as a top five banking podcast and the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. I appreciate the support you've provided since we started this endeavor. If you enjoy our show, please be sure to provide a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles in the financial brand and check out the research you're doing for the digital banking report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Prince. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, remember, the greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence. It is acting with yesterday's logic.
1: Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit,
0: fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit